0: tournament is Friday. We play at the Robert Trent Jones course down in Florence, and guys tend to like coming in for that, but we start at 8 o'clock, and so if you play golf and want to put a team together and come down, we've still got some space. You can see me afterward, and we'll get you some information about that. I want to begin in Ephesians chapter 4 and share just a couple of verses there, and use those as a springboard into our lesson tonight. Because in Ephesians 4, as Paul is writing, he's painting the picture of a healthy church. And so the Bible says in verse 15, "...but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself... In love, and so this, this picture's painted of the body with all of its working parts, and the body 's most, most healthy when every part is fulfilling its function. Several years ago, I was down in Texas. We had a, one of our student groups was down there on a campaign in Fairfield, and in one sense it was set up a little bit like it is here in Savannah. The congregation was across the street from the local high school. Now their congregation wasn't nearly as strong, nearly as prominent in the community as this one is, but the one of the elders was the high school basketball coach. And we got to talking basketball one night, and he handed me a copy of the book, How Lucky You Can Be. And that will come up on the screen in just a moment. And you may be familiar with Don Meyer. He coached basketball in Nashville through uh, part of the 70s, all of the 80s, most of the 90s. And then uh, at the end of the 90s or toward the end, he went out to Aberdeen, South Dakota uh, to coach basketball out there at Northern State University. The book is about his life as a coach. And he's now passed away. He passed away... Uh, between a year and two years ago, I guess it was. But the book was titled based on something that happened out there out west. It was August. Uh, new players were in town, and so in August, they were going to have kind of a retreat about 45 minutes from the campus. And so they're caravanning out to where they're going to have this retreat for the basketball team. Coach Meyer is in leading the way. He's in his car Well, he goes to sleep while he's driving. He drifts across the center line. He's head on by a semi. And it almost kills him. It does, in the end, cost him one of his legs. But while he's in the hospital and while they're doing surgery, trying to deal with his leg, they discovered that he had cancer. And the title of the book that Buster Olney wrote, the title of the book was based on Coach Meyer's response to finding out that he had cancer. His response was, I'm a lucky guy. Because if I hadn't had this wreck, they wouldn't have been doing surgery on me. And if they hadn't been doing surgery on me, I I wouldn't know now that I've got cancer. But at least now I know what I've got, so I know what I've got to deal with. So I'm a lucky guy. I don't know if I'd respond that way, but that was how he responded, and that was the title of the book. Well, early on, as it talked about his philosophy to coaching... It talked about three things that before players ever touched a basketball for him, three things that they were going to learn and three things they were going to embrace and three things that were going to become a part of them if they were going to play ball for him uh, there at Lipscomb. And so uh, the three things are these, and these are your three points in the lesson tonight. Everyone takes notes, everyone shows respect, and everyone picks up trash. And, and if you were going to play for Coach Meyer, those three things were going to be a part of who you became as one of his players. And as I read that, uh, jealous isn't the right word, but when you, read it, when you read about his leadership skills and when you read about who he was, it made me really wish that I could have taken a class from him and learned leadership from him because he really made an impact on his students. So I'm reading the book and I've got these three things going through my mind. And for those of us who preach, and you may do this as you teach Bible classes or if you ever are needing to stand in front of a group and do a Bible lesson, but we're always looking for spiritual application. And so I'm thinking, okay, everybody takes notes and everybody shows respect and everybody picks up trash. And I'm thinking, wow, what if if our congregations embrace those three things as a whole? As a group, everyone on the team embraced those three things. In terms of body theology that we started with in Ephesians chapter 4, every person doing his or her part, every person fulfilling his or her function as part of the body, how much more healthy could the body of Christ be if we could embrace these three things? And so that's what we want to spend our time on tonight and the lesson Will be yours. thinking in terms of everyone taking notes. Maybe you've had this happen in school, and it's one it, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It didn't happen often, but in the cases where it did, you walk into class and you're ready for class, and you look around the room and people aren't in their normal frame of mind before class because instead of talking or doing what they do, they're all heads down in some notes. And there's this feeling that comes over you like a wave where you realize that you're having a test that day, and you forgot it, and they didn't. Or, the teacher's lecturing, and you've been making some notes along, and the teacher's lecturing, and you maybe drift away a little bit like we sometimes do, and then all of a sudden when you come back to, you realize that everybody in the room is writing something down except you. And you think, wow, I've missed something very important and so I've got to get out of here and I've got to find out what was said because I don't need to miss out on important things. Did you know that according to the Harvard Business Review, they published an article that said that only 10% of our population has what you would call a learning mindset. For those of us who are Christians, a learning mindset really ought to be a part of who we are. But but the the numbers say that only about one in ten of us is by nature going to have a learning, dive into it sort of mindset. Back to Coach Meyer. Why would a coach mandate this? Because when they pictured his locker room... Now, when I think of a basketball locker room at halftime, I think of guys maybe sitting around their lockers, maybe in a semicircle. Coach may be at the board writing some things on the board, but Coach Meyer's halftime locker room was very different. It was school desks. And you had a spiral-bound notebook, and you had an ink pen, and at halftime, you sat at your desk, and if he's talking about something, you're writing it in your notebook... Because as a part of the team, you don't want to be the weak link. You don't want to be the guy who forgot his assignment and and cost the team the game because your forgetfulness, it doesn't just cost you, it costs all those other guys who are working hard to be a part of that team. Experts tell us that there's great power. In actually taking time to write something down or uh, today maybe we electronically capture a note, it increases self-awareness. It increases retention. And if you think back in school, now we took notes there because we needed to pass the test. If I don't have the notes, I can't do the studying and I may not pass the test. So we did that. And you know, if you go to work, sometimes we make some notes at work to make sure that we're adequately covered because we don't want to get into a meeting with our boss or with somebody else and have them say, well, we talked about this Well, we never talked about that. And so when we go to a meeting, we write things down so we know accurately what we've agreed to and what our responsibilities are. So we write things down to make sure that we're covered. And probably all of us have lost a great idea at some point because we thought of something powerful and we thought, that's so powerful, I'll remember that. And then we didn't remember it. And because we didn't write it down, it was gone. Well, you understand where we're going with this. What happens when it comes to church, whether it be personal Bible study, whether it be sitting in a Bible class, whether it be sitting in the corporate worship as the the Word is preached, when we're together or when we're studying alone, do we gather information and try to keep track of information that's important like we would in any other important situation? In other words, spiritually speaking, would we be regarded as prolific note-takers? Or, is it possible that over time, I mean, after all, we study one book for a lifetime, and is it possible that over time maybe we've kind of gotten a little bit complacent about what we know, or what we think we know? And, and well, we could ask it this way. Are we okay with reading something in Scripture and it, I'm not really sure it makes sense, I'm not really sure I understand it, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to hope for the best on that. Or the preacher's got an opinion on that, so probably the preacher's right, so I'm going to be fine with whatever my preacher has told me. Please don't ever do that with me. And please don't ever do that with whoever stands before you because there is too much on the line for us not to be the kind of folks who say, I need to figure that out. I need to dive into that. I need to make sure that what the preacher said is actually what the Bible says. One of the fun things I like to do with my if I'm teaching junior high students, younger folks like that, we may be in a Bible class and I may have somebody read a scripture and not too long ago I had a young lady read a scripture and I said, okay, now, you read that. Tell me what you just read like I'm five years old. Explain that to me like I'm a five-year-old. And it was like deer in the headlights. And that's okay and that's why we go to class because we read something and if it doesn't make sense then we break it down and we try to make sure that we understand what we're reading. You know, sometimes I'll be in a small country congregation into service. Somebody will get up and they'll say, Daily Bible readers, and you raise your hand up if you were a daily Bible reader and there's a thing over on the board where you write that down. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, now do we engage in the daily Bible reading to make sure that we can raise our hand and get our number on the board or do we truly seek the highest value in learning from the process of being in the Scripture? I think of places like Proverbs chapter 10, verse 14. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Proverbs 24, verse 5. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. One of the great values in the Old Testament is it helps us understand God. Because you see God interacting with people. And you see God responding to people. And one of the things that you see over and over and over with God is you see a God who's always been meticulous in giving instructions. You think about the building of the ark. We're not going to go back to Genesis chapter 6 and read that. But but God is very specific as he deals with Noah in saying, This is what I want, this is what I'm looking for. You think about the old law. I don't think I'd have made it as a priest. I've been, you know, trying to listen to to Bible as I drive sometimes and man you get into the old law and it would have been hard to make sure that you did the sacrifices in the way that God said to do them because there were a lot of details. The tabernacle You know, when our young children, they go into Bible class and they have material put in front of them and it'll have these really detailed uh, drawings of what the tabernacle probably looked like. Well, the reason our young kids can have detailed drawings of what the tabernacle probably looked like is because God was so meticulous in telling His people what He wanted. And my question is, why be so detailed if the details really don't matter? And the other thing that's revealed about God time and time again, when details were ignored, it typically didn't end well for the person who chose to ignore the details. And so for us as note-takers, as Bible students, do do I place a priority on on transforming my, my learning experiences, my spiritual learning experiences to the highest possible value? We're all very familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3. Words that we probably hear over and over and over, but, but it can't be un- underemphasized. All scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is God breathed, it is the roadmap for right living, it's the GPS for finding my way home. Imagine for just a minute not having access to a copy of the Bible I'm, I'm not a big fan of this one I can't see anymore and so I had to go buy this Bible that's bigger than I am because the in it's real big but at home I've got this stack of Bibles and you probably do too but what if you couldn't get a hold of this? You know, what lengths would you go to to try to get your hands on a copy of the Word of God? What risks would you take? How much money would you be willing to spend to get your hands on one copy of the Word of God? How far would you drive? It's so easy to take something so valuable for granted. And, and I think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6: Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Romans 10:17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. And I know we need to move on, but practically speaking, do I always arrive with a way to be in the Bible, whether it's on my phone, whether it's in hand, whatever it may be, do I always arrive with a copy of the Scriptures eager to learn? And then, do I allow things that happen either in worship or in my Bible classes, do I allow those things to spur me on to further study? And do I approach Bible class and do I approach the preaching time in worship and and my personal study like I'm preparing for a test? Because ironically, we're living out the test every single day. And what God has done is He said, you know, yeah, you're going to be saved by my grace and my love and my mercy and we never neglect those things, but He says, you know, you are responsible for what's in the book. I know we've got a number of teachers in the room, and one of my least favorite things for a teacher to ever do was to lecture, 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 maybe we do a unit of material, and it's getting near test time, and then the teacher says something like, okay, we've talked about a lot of things. But there's some things in the book that we maybe haven't talked about, and you're responsible for that too. That was always frustrating, because that meant you had to go read the book if you are going to take the test. God says, hey, I've given you this road map and you're responsible for what's in the book. You ever been flipping channels and noticed some of the audiences for some of the TV preachers that you'll see on TV? Have you noticed how in every case, and it may well be staged because the front rows are always packed and you know, in real life they typically aren't, but they paint a picture of eager learning It's notebooks open, it's Bibles open, it's pens in hand, and like I said, some of it may be staged, but they paint a picture of what we really ought to be, people who are eager to have an opportunity to dig into the Word of God. So that's number one. Number two, and we'll move more quickly on these other two. Uh, Number two is the idea that everyone shows respect, and... In the book, the author reveals that that Coach Meyer, he wanted his ballplayers saying things like, Yes, sir and no sir, and yes ma'am, and no ma'am. And he had this great belief in, if we go into a place as a ball team, we're going to try to leave that place better than we found it. There's a story in the book, that, uh, Lipscomb and Belmont have always been huge rivals. And so the coach at Belmont shares this story about, he had just started coaching there, and the first time Lipscomb played ball at Belmont, he went in the visitor's locker room afterward, and what he found was everything cleaned up, all the towels that had been used that night were kind of neatly placed in one spot. There was a thank you note from the captain of the team thanking them for their hospitality. But that's what Coach Meyer expected of his players. Everybody's going to show respect. You ever met some kids, interacted with them a little bit? And- Walk away from that conversation going, man, those, those kids, you can just tell. they were. You may even say it to your spouse. You can tell they were raised upright. Or maybe you've interacted with some folks briefly and you, you turn to your spouse and you don't even have to say it. You're like, oh, something's nice. Something's missing there. We are representing Christ. And hopefully we love in everything we do because that's the other place we go with this. At the base of everything that we're talking about, there's got to be love. But as representatives of Christ, would people meet me and then say that I show proper respect for both the Lord and for other people? Would people who interact with me conclude that I've been raised upright in the Lord? And that's not just a question for young people. That that's a question for all of us, no matter what our stage of life. Turn with me, if you would, to First Peter the second chapter, because there are some verses there. First Peter, there's a lot of great things going on, and, and it's a powerful chapter. And early in that chapter. There are those familiar words where Peter is writing about who we are as Christians and he talks about the idea in verse 9, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And and there's a reason for that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You know, you're once not a people, but now you're the people of God. And and so then as he continues the discussion, he he talks about how as Christians, as God's people how we ought to be interacting with, with other folks he says in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right and then you get down to verse 17 and he says honor people who treat you right does your Bible say that? My Bible doesn't say that. My Bible says Peter's instruction is honor all people. Love the brotherhood. We need to do more of that. Fear God. Honor the King. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, we don't do servant-master today. But we do employee-employer, and most all of us probably at some point have been in an employee-employer situation where employer maybe wasn't treating me with the respect that I think I should be treated with. And Peter says, hey, you, you still be submissive. You still... Show respect. And then he goes on to say, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. He said there's a way as representatives of Christ, there's a way as children of God that we ought to be known for interacting with people. And so the questions become, do I treat people right even when they treat me wrong? Do I show respect to those who don't respect me? Do I show respect to those who are on the team as well as to those who are in the world? And see, I think Peter understood the difficulty. Now, we've talked about Philippians chapter 2 where Paul's writing, and he says, hey, I want you to be selfless. And he says, I know it's hard, so here's Jesus. Well, Peter does the same thing here. He says, I need you to be submissive, and I need you to be a servant, and I need you to be that kind of a person. As the very next thing he does is says, let me show you Jesus. He says in verse 21, For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept... And notice, you can read a verse and read a verse and read a verse. And a while back, something jumped out in this verse for me that I'd never really noticed before. But I think it's the key to living this stuff out the right way. He says, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. As a person who's trying to honor other people and show respect for other people, sometimes to people who aren't living godly and who aren't treating me right... Do, do I rest assured or do I operate in this idea that I'm entrusting myself to Him who judges righteously? In other words, God's going to take care of things. God's going to deal with things. God's going to get it right and God will make no mistakes. And so, if, if I show respect and I treat people the right way, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And that is this aspect of entrusting myself to Him who judges righteously. The other thing I want you to notice is a verse that I skipped over intentionally a minute ago. As I interact with people, do I try to interact with them with the idea in mind that I might just be the only Christian that they'll ever have a conversation with? That's verse 12 where where Peter writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation or in the day of judgment. In other words, our interaction with people might have a profound difference on what kind of a judgment day they have. Because Judgment Day, while we look forward to it and we look forward to going home, Judgment Day is not going to be a good day for some people according to the Bible. And Peter's saying here, the way we choose to interact and the way we choose to show respect and the way we choose to show honor, it may have a lot to do with reflecting Christ. It may have a lot to do with getting people interested in God. We're talking about some of these things at one congregation and my friend Gina came up to me and she said, I've got to share a story with you. She said, you may want to share it sometime. It may bless some other people. But she said, I was in Walmart one day and I had my, my young son with me and we were over in the toy department and, and if we've been in Walmart in the toys with kids, almost all of us have had the negotiation that occurs at that big tall thing with all the balls in it. Because the kids want to get the balls out and play with them and they make a mess. And So her son had gotten a ball out and he's bouncing it through the aisles. Well, an older uh, associate working there at Walmart came up to her son and said, Son, you, you, know, you need to put that ball away. And Gina said, I'm not normally this way. She said, I don't know what came over me. But something about that lady saying that to my son, it just hit me the wrong way. And so she said, I got that ball back out of the bin, and I handed it to my son, and I said, I'm buying that ball, and son, you can just bounce that ball as much as you want to up and down this aisle. Yeah. By the time they got to the car, she was already feeling bad about that because she knew as a Christian she hadn't handled that right. And she got to the car and she's shedding some tears and she turned to her son and she said, Mommy didn't do well today. Mommy didn't do right. That wasn't that wasn't good. But that really wasn't enough. She said, I let that bother me for two weeks and finally two weeks... I." I'm still not, I'm still got this on my mind. So finally, I called Walmart and I said, in the toy department, there's an older female associate that works back there. I don't know her name, but, but could, do you know who I'm talking about? Could you put her on the phone? And so my friend Gina gets on the phone with this lady and she apologizes. And she said, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm not supposed to act that way. That's not the way I normally act. And, and I need you to forgive me and I need to apologize to you. And tears were shed. And Gina concluded her story by saying, the next time I'm in the toy department in Walmart, I'm going to hug that lady's neck. See, typically there's no easier time to show respect And to act properly then between maybe 9 and 11 on a Sunday morning or 6 and 7 on a Sunday night or whatever time midweek service is. But the question becomes, you know, what happens tomorrow at 8.30? And you get to the office and you've barely been able to get your first cup of coffee. You're trying to sit down and get your week started. And all of a sudden your people are coming at you. And it's he said and she said and this person did this. and, And it's like you're under attack. And in those moments, can I show respect? Or it's about 10 o'clock on Tuesday and the phone rings, and we've trained that the customer is always what? Right. But that's not true. The customer is not always right. And you get that phone call, and the customer could not be more wrong. And so at 10 o'clock on Tuesday, when that call comes in, am I still going to show honor? And am I still going to show respect? Or, or maybe it's like the picture on the screen. It's Wednesday about 5.30 and we've got just enough time to run in and get something to eat. And for whatever reason, we sit down at the table in the restaurant. It's like we're invisible. We cannot get served. We don't know what's going on with that server. Maybe she's had a horrible week. But in those moments, do I show respect? Or then maybe it's this evening about 7.15 or 7.30, whatever, when we finish visiting here inside, service is over, and we get in in our cars with those who we love the most, those who we're the closest to, those who we care the most about, our blood family, and how will we do at showing respect about 7.15 tonight when we're in the car with them? But see, I'm convinced if we can get it right at home with those that we're closest to, Probably the rest of it's going to do a lot toward just falling into place. Finally, number three tonight, it's this idea that everybody picks up trash. And if you ever watched a Don Meyer team play basketball, they played with a ferocious defense. I mean, everybody was everywhere, and if you needed to be on the floor, you were on the floor. It's this idea, I'm willing to put my personal needs aside to, to, for the good of the team. For the church application, the question is this, is there anything in the kingdom that I regard as being beneath me? You know, am I selfless enough to pick up the trash? If I go out and repave the parking lot, nobody's going to miss that. Everybody's going to see that the parking lot's been repaved. Am I just as okay with that as I am with maybe cleaning up that toilet that's overflowed? Same trip to Florida, well actually I didn't talk about Florida, the guy handed me the book in Texas. I set it aside and was making a quick trip Quick trip to Florida and so I took it on the plane and read this on a plane. I'm down there on a Wednesday night to visit a church that I don't know very well. I'd been there one other time. They were supporting the school and so I go in there and I've got a guy that's kind of my key contact but I don't know this church very well. And so as we're talking that night, he asks me, he said, "Did you know a certain preacher?" And he names this guy. And I said, "Well, I kind of knew him, didn't know him well." I said, "From what I know, he was a pretty good preacher." And and the guy said, "Yeah, he was a good preacher." But he said, "You know what?" That guy, he was unwilling to move a table, and he was unwilling to move a chair. And I didn't mention this, but the guy that he's talking about is deceased. Now normally, you know, especially once somebody has passed, you'll try to remember the good, and you'll talk about the good, but this guy, I barely know him, and he's talking to me about a preacher that's no longer even living, and I don't know if it's true or not. But that was this guy's perception. And here's what I do know is true. That guy probably preached a lot of great sermons. And if he was unwilling to move a table or a chair, there are a lot of great sermons that nobody ever heard. Because what they saw in him spoke much more loudly than what he was saying. For us, as members of the team, are we the kind of folks... Are willing to pick up the trash. Now you may have seen this picture and I don't mean to be inappropriate with it. It went around on email years ago so I hope it's not the first time you're seeing this. But see, my job is to paint the lines on the road. That's what I do. I get on my truck and, and I go down the road and my job is to paint the lines on the road. My job is not to stop and get out of the truck and remove the dead animals from the road. My job is to paint the lines. It is somebody else's job to clear the dead animals out of the road. And see, when that's my mindset, we end up with painting right over whatever's in the way. And we just can't afford to have that kind of a mindset in the Lord's church. The classic picking up the trash text is John chapter 13. Jesus is on His way to the cross. The trash on the floor in John 13 is this room full of dirty feet. And horror of horrors, the room's full of dirty feet, and there is nobody in the room to wash the feet because you've got a group of guys in the room. These are the inner circle. These are the guys who are supposed to understand it better than other people. And they're all looking around at each other. There's no servant. And so you've got everyone waiting for someone to do the dirty job that no one is willing to do. Well, let's face it. Dirty feet even clean feet can be kind of nasty. I've kind of been put on notice. You know, Philip, when you get old and when you can't do your own foot maintenance, you're probably going to have to hire that out. You know, I've just already kind of been told that because feet are not the prettiest things in the world to deal with. Dirty feet. And you almost see the guys looking around the room at each other. Well, psh, I'm not going to wash his feet. If he thinks I'm going to wash his feet, he's got another thing coming. Now, the role of washing the feet it was a lowly lowly task you had jewish servants and you had gentile servants and the washing the feet thing was so lowly the jewish servants typically didn't have to do that one it was reserved for the gentile servants This degrading task, if it's wife performing for husband, if it's child washing feet of parent, if it's pupil washing feet of teacher, it was also regarded as an act of extreme devotion. And it had social implications. Somebody of a higher class would never be caught washing the feet of somebody of a lower class. And so you've got a group of guys, and they've got this paradigm for how things work in their mind. And then it's Jesus who girds on the towel, stoops down, washes the feet, and that gets us to John chapter 13, long about verse 12. So when He had washed their feet and taken His garments and reclined at the table, He said to them, "'Do you know what I've done to you?' And if I'm there, I'm thinking, yeah, you just destroyed my whole understanding of how life is supposed to work. But he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And then he gives them, if you know these things, you're blessed if you... Do them. Do we truly believe that greatness is found through serving? See we need to never stop imagining. Most organizations, there's this 2080 rule. 20% of the folks do about 80% of the work. We need to envision and dream about a 100-100 model. And somebody's probably thought tonight, well, you're preaching about everyone doing these things, and this isn't the everyone assembly. My belief is when the core gets on board, it brings everybody else along. So how are we doing in learning and in showing respect and being willing to pick up the trash? Obviously with a spirit of love, underpinning all of that. One of the very positive things I've noticed in my brief time here is a number of people have prayed for unity. And the more everyone's on the same page with being about a, being a healthy body of Christ, that, that, that breeds, that brings about, that promotes unity. That helps us love. Are we doing everything as the body of Christ, everything we can do to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head? Here's one way to ask this question in the lesson's yours. If everybody at Savannah had my level of commitment, would this congregation be better or would it be worse? If everybody at Savannah had my level of commitment, would this church be stronger or would it be weaker? And if you can't answer that question the way you'd like to, the next question is, okay, what needs to change? The beauty of it is, I think Bill prayed that, that we start the rest of our lives right now. Man, that's a great prayer because it's true. I may not like the answer that, I, that comes back to me, but I, I can start over right now. Maybe it's a recommitment to, to maximizing every learning experience. Maybe it's a determination to better represent Christ, not only among my brethren, but in town. Maybe it's finding a new way to serve. But if you have a need tonight, we serve the God, as we talked about the other day, of the fresh start. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to begin your walk with Him by being baptized into Christ. If you have a need tonight, let that be known while we stand and while we sing. be, life, be